0: Chapter twenty four of Scenes from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter twenty four of Scenes Criminal Courts. We shall never forget the mingled feelings of awe and respect with which we used to gaze on the exterior of newgate in our schoolboy days how dreadful its rough heavy walls and low massive doors appeared to us the latter looking as if they were made for the express purpose of letting people in and never letting them out again then the fetters over the debtor's door, which we used to think were a bona fide set of irons, just hung up there for convenience' sake, ready to be taken down at a moment's notice and riveted on the limbs of some refractory felon. We were never tired of wondering how the hackney coachman on the opposite stand could cut jokes in the presence of such horrors, and drink pots of half and half so near the last drop often we have strayed here in session's time to catch a glimpse of the whipping-place and that dark building on one side of the yard in which is kept the gibbet with all its dreadful apparatus and on the door of which we half expected to see a brass plate with the inscription mr ketch for we never imagined that the distinguished functionary could by possibility live anywhere else the days of these childish dreams have passed away and with them many other boyish ideas of a gayer nature but we still retain so much of our original feeling that to this hour we never pass the building without something like a shudder What London pedestrian is there who has not, at some time or other, cast a hurried glance through the wicket at which prisoners are admitted into this gloomy mansion, and surveyed the few objects he could discern with an indescribable feeling of curiosity? The thick door, plated with iron and mounted with spikes, just low enough to enable you to see, leaning over them, an ill-looking fellow in a broad-brimmed hat— belcher, handkerchief and top boots, with a brown coat, something between a greatcoat and a sporting jacket on his back, and an immense key in his left hand. Perhaps you are lucky enough to pass, just as the gate is being opened. Then you see, on the other side of the lodge, another gate, the image of its predecessor, and two or three more turnkeys, who look like multiplications of the first one seated round a fire which just lights up the whitewashed apartment sufficiently to enable you to catch a hasty glimpse of these different objects we have a great respect for mrs fry but she certainly ought to have written more romances than mrs radcliffe we were walking leisurely down the old bailey some time ago when as we passed this identical gate it was opened by the officiating turnkey We turned quickly round, as a matter of course, and saw two persons descending the steps. We could not help stopping and observing them. They were an elderly woman, of decent appearance, though evidently poor, and a boy of about fourteen or fifteen. The woman was crying bitterly. She carried a small bundle in her hand, and the boy followed at a short distance behind her. Their little history was obvious. The boy was her son, whose early comfort she had perhaps sacrificed her own, for whose sake she had borne misery without repining and poverty without a murmur, looking steadily forward to the time when he who had so long witnessed her struggles for himself might be enabled to make some exertions for their joint support. He had formed dissolute connections, idleness had led to crime, and he had been committed to take his trial for some petty theft. He had been long in prison, and after receiving some trifling additional punishment had been ordered to be discharged that morning. It was his first offence, and his poor old mother, still hoping to reclaim him, had been waiting at the gate to implore him to return home. We cannot forget the boy. He descended the steps with a dogged look, shaking his head with an air of bravado and obstinate determination. They walked a few paces and paused. The woman put her hand upon his shoulder in an agony of entreaty, and the boy sullenly raised his head, as if in refusal. It was a brilliant morning, and every object looked fresh and happy in the broad, gay sunlight. He gazed round him for a few moments, bewildered with the brightness of the scene, for it was long since he had beheld anything save the gloomy walls of a prison. Perhaps the wretchedness of his mother made some impression on the boy's heart, perhaps some undefined recollection of the time when he was a happy child, and she his only friend and best companion, crowded on him. He burst into tears, and covering his face with one hand, and hurriedly placing the other in his mother's, walked away with her. Curiosity had occasionally led us into both courts at the Old Bailey, Nothing is so likely to strike the person who enters them for the first time as the calm indifference with which the proceedings are conducted. Every trial seems a mere matter of business. There is a great deal of form, but no compassion, considerable interest, but no sympathy. Take the old court, for example. There sit the judges, with whose great dignity everybody is acquainted, and of whom, therefore, we need say no more then there is the lord mayor in the centre looking as cool as a lord mayor can look with an immense bouquet before him and habited in all the splendour of his office then there are the sheriffs who are almost as dignified as the lord mayor himself and the barristers who are quite dignified enough in their own opinion and the spectators who having paid for their admission look upon the whole scene as if it were got up especially for their amusement Look upon the whole group in the body of the court, some wholly engrossed in the morning papers, others carelessly conversing in low whispers, and others again quietly dozing away an hour. And you can scarcely believe that the result of the trial is a matter of life or death to one wretched being present. But turn your eyes to the dock, watch the prisoner attentively for a few moments, and the fact is before you, in all its painful reality, Mark how restlessly he has been engaged for the last ten minutes in forming all sorts of fantastic figures with the herbs which are strewed upon the ledge before him. Observe the ashy paleness of his face when a particular witness appears, and how he changes his position and wipes his clammy forehead and feverish hands, when the case for the prosecution is closed, as if it were a relief to him to feel that the jury knew the worst. The defence is concluded. The judge proceeds to sum up the evidence, and the prisoner watches the countenances of the jury as a dying man, clinging to life to the very last, vainly looks in the face of his physician for a slight ray of hope. They turn round to consult. You can almost hear the man's heart beat as he bites the stalk of Rosemary with a desperate effort to appear composed they resume their places a dead silence prevails as the foreman delivers in the verdict guilty a shriek bursts from a female in the gallery the prisoner casts one look at the quarter from whence the noise proceeded and is immediately hurried from the dock by the jailer the clerk directs one of the officers of the court to take the woman out and fresh business is proceeded with as if nothing had occurred No imaginary contrast to a case like this could be as complete as that which is constantly presented in the new court, the gravity of which is frequently disturbed in no small degree by the cunning and pertinacity of juvenile offenders. A boy of thirteen is tried, say, for picking the pocket of some subject of Her Majesty, and the offence is about as clearly proved as an offence can be. He is called upon for his defence, and contents himself with a little declamation about the jurymen and his country, asserts that all the witnesses have committed perjury, and hints that the police force generally have entered into a conspiracy against him. However probable this statement may be, it fails to convince the court, and some such scene as the following then takes place. COURT. Have you any witnesses to speak to your character, boy? Boy, yes, my lord. Fifteen gentlemen is a waiting outside. I was a waiting all day yesterday, which they told me the night afore my trial was coming on. Court, inquire for these witnesses. Here, a stout beadle runs out and vociferates for the witnesses at the very top of his voice. For you hear his cry grow fainter and fainter as he descends the steps into the courtyard below. After an absence of five minutes, he returns, very warm and hoarse and informs the court of what it knew perfectly well before, namely that there are no such witnesses in attendance. Hereupon the boy sets up a most awful howling, screws the lower part of the palms of his hands into the corners of his eyes, and endeavours to look the picture of injured innocence. The jury at once finds him guilty, and his endeavours to squeeze out a tear or two are redoubled. The governor of the jail then states, in reply to an inquiry from the bench, that the prisoner has been under his care twice before. This the urchin resolutely denies in some such terms as, Selp me, gentlemen, I never was in trouble afore, indeed, my lord, I never was. It's all a hoeing to my having a twin brother, which has wrongfully got into trouble, and which is so exactly like me, that no one ever knows the difference between us. This representation, like the defence, fails in producing the desired effect, and the boy is sentenced, perhaps, to seven years' transportation. Finding it impossible to excite compassion, he gives vent to his feelings in an imprecation bearing reference to the eyes of Old Big Fig, and as he declines to take the trouble of walking from the dock, is forthwith carried out congratulating himself on having succeeded in giving everybody as much trouble as possible chapter twenty four of scenes from sketches by boz